You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, uh, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. I'm JR. And I'm Chris. And I almost forgot my intro there. <laughs> That's awful. I don't know how many times I've done it, but I never stop to think about it. I just do it by rote. And for once, I stopped to think about it and couldn't remember what the words were. Hmm. Chris, thanks for joining me. The reason being, uh, we've had a bit of an emergency over at the Blue Box podcast, and I've been left stranded entirely on my own. Mm-hmm. And while some people might say, well, is that really going to make any difference to the podcast anyway? I have you to talk to instead. And I'm happy to be here. Well, I'm looking forward to this. This is going to be, well, probably, hopefully, a completely different conversation to the one I usually have. And well, by, by having a different person participating, one would hope so, yes. Absolutely. And and to reassure the listeners, obviously, Lee and Simon are going to be giving their opinions on last Christmas, probably next week or whenever they come back. But but for now, yours and mine thoughts, Chris. Mm-hmm. And we've we've both got notes. We have, we have. Yeah, which is a bit of a first for me. I never have notes. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a note taker by nature, just because I don't trust my memory. Or I don't trust my memory to at least remember all the things I want to bring up. Therefore, I have to write it down. Otherwise, I'm, I'm going to be lost. Yeah, that's a very good point. Because so often we get to the end of the podcast and I'm thinking, oh, I've got to mention such and such and such mm-hmm. and such. I really should make notes more often. But I've got a few things, because this is now a week nearly since the episode went out. i got a few things that people have brought up on the internet that I kind of wanted to reply to, really. But first, for anybody who hasn't listened to your Radio Free Scaro review yet, and I can't imagine there's anybody listening to this podcast who hasn't, but let's just suppose... <laughs> I haven't. Oh, really? Well, oh, but... I mean, I was there to record it, but I haven't listened to it since to have any recollection of what I've said. So this is going to be news to you. To a when... point. Well, when I ask you, what did you think of last Christmas? Um, in this case, I, I think I can give you reasonably uh, the same answer as, as on RFS, that uh, I didn't know what to think of it afterward. I was um, I was taken aback by the, the, the strangeness of it all, because it's, it's, it's a very, I'm hesitant to say the word unique, because it really isn't, given all the pastiches, but um, it's, it's very different type of story especially for christmas and i I just didn't know what to take away from it and i've now had a chance to watch it about two and a half times right overall and i still don't know what to take from it i mean 
the more I think of it, the more I watch it, the more I enjoy it. No question. It's, it's certainly something that's growing in my estimation, but, uh, upon first blush, it was, I was very middling on it. You know, you say unique, and that's a really good point because in spite of the fact that Stephen Moffat is doing a bunch of stuff that he's taken from outside influences, and we'll come back to this, but the alien thing, the thing from another world thing, he's taken a bunch of stuff from outside, and he's also taken a bunch of his own stuff, the kind of stuff, the kind of stuff that people say, oh, he's just repeating himself, but to me, that just seems like themes in his work. But, for instance, the the dream crabs, if you're not looking at them and you're not thinking about them, they can't attack, which mm-hmm. is kind of a similar thing to, well, the opposite, but same as with the angels, yeah. And even the silence, to an extent, is the same sort of thing. So he's taking that as well, but doing the dream within a dream within a dream thing, I don't think that's ever been done, I don't think that's ever been done at all in Doctor Who, has it? Not in Doctor Who. I mean, the obvious the obvious comparison is Inception. Yeah. But even even then, it's it's not a it's not a motif that's really widely widely used. At least not that I can think of. I suppose the most famous version of it would be Alice in Wonderland. I suppose so. So this is kind of this is kind of Stephen Moffat doing Alice in Wonderland by way of. Alien, and obviously, well, I say obviously, Inception. I've not seen Inception. I take it you have. I have. There's also a, an episode of Futurama, which is uh, of a very similar theme as well. Right. So in Inception, is that dreams within dreams? It is dreams within dreams. Um, in in Last Christmas, the, the, the trigger to know that you're still in a dream is the, the so-called ice cream pain in the temple. Yeah, yeah. In, in Inception, the people who... The people who go into the into the the, the the dreams in Inception, they they have with them a little a little token of some sort. Which um, I mean, the the main one used in the film is a little spinning top that uh, defies the laws of physics. Like it always spins and never topples uh, after okay. a time. So if 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 the if the person spins this this top and it it defies the laws of physics, then they know they're still within the dream. Well, that's interesting. Did you like it, Inception? By the way, I, I did. Yes, um, I don't remember enough of it to to say why or how at this point in time. But uh, when I watched it a year or two ago, whenever it was, yes, I did. It was, I thought it was a reasonably clever film. Yeah, I gave up on Christopher Nolan after the first Batman movie. Uh, I have to okay. say, he's one of to me. He's one of those filmmakers who is all about the ideas and all about the imagery, and seems to forget that he's got people in his films. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I always find the characters really thin and unconvincing, and I and when that happens, I don't have anything to engage with. Do you know what I mean? I I would take exception with that when it comes to Memento, I suppose. But uh... yes, yeah, see, even in Memento, I didn't. I just didn't find myself engaging with it beyond. Okay, where's this scene going to stop and where's the next one going to start? Mm. But that's by the by. As for <laughs> this, well, as for this, let's talk about the characters then. Were the characters people that you could engage with? The guest characters first. Oh, the guest cast. Um, I, I Overall, I'd have to say yes. Uh, I, I don't think there's any way one can say no other than by virtue of joining this story partway through the 
well, what we'll call their experience or what I'll call their experience on the North Pole base. Um, you know, you don't have this, this footing of who they are, why they're there or anything like that. And of course it doesn't help that they don't know who they are or why they're there. But, um, uh, yes, I mean, the, um, the, the sexy one acted as a base commander and then, um, uh, I've, I've, I've not committed their, their names to memory. The one with the the curly hair, uh, was kind of, uh, you know, a a forthright scientist. And then Shona was the one. The gobby one, I think they called her. Um, yeah. Anyway, she was she was weird and flippant and all that. And um, Michael Troughton's character was he was the thinnest, by, wasn't he, of the four? I think he was. He was he was the least well well explored, least well developed. Which seemed well, I maybe maybe just maybe that's Stephen Moffat having picked up on the criticism criticisms of him not writing women very well and deciding to. Uh, make the females the stronger characters in his story, and I, I tell suppose, you, I suppose that's possible. I, I don't know if I would believe that, but I would. Well, he does. He yeah. does take note of the criticisms, you know, because he does. He, he obviously, and I'm sure it was him, wrote that scene into um, the Orient Express one, Mummy on the Orient Express, the mm. one about the uh, Bechdel test, didn't he? Yeah. The, the on the nose Bechdel test one, yeah, 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 and that was very obviously, uh, to my mind at least, that was very obviously Stephen Moffat having a bit of a chuckle at his critics. And I tell you what, as well, talking about Stephen Moffat writing women, Death in Heaven, three strong female characters, four strong female characters, including Clara, none of whom, to my mind, were remotely similar to one another. So these criticisms that he writes all his women exactly the same as one another, they don't really hold any water in my mind. You're talking Kate Stewart, Osgood, and Missy? Yep, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, absolutely, I'd agree on that one. See, we're already off on tangents, Chris. I'll be doing mm. this all night. That's okay. <laughs> Back to the... Well, we come. I'm, I want to come to the Doctor and Clara in a minute because there's something I want to bring up before we get to them. But let's talk about, well, let's talk about the pastiches. Well, let's talk about the dream itself first and then the pastiches. I'm just making this up as I go along. And which dream do you refer to? Well, this is the thing. I watched it again this afternoon. Oh, yesterday afternoon, rather, for the second time. Because I've had a busy week and I hadn't got a chance to watch it for the second time yet. But it strikes me that they, right, you've got these... Six characters, including the Doctor and Clara, who all come into this dream. And they're all sharing this dream, but one of them is guiding it. And this would be, I think it's Shona, isn't it? Who the, yeah, it must be Shona because you've got the note at the end. Mm -hmm. So Shona is guiding the dream. And then the Doctor and Clara arrive and... Now, here's the question. Is it the Doctor or is it Clara who takes over guiding the dream? Because, and here's the reason why I ask, at the end of the episode, you've got Shona with her list of things to do on Christmas Day. And it's watch Alien, watch The Thing from Another World, watch Miracle on 34th Street, which is, you know, the three major influences on, let's call it, the plot. Mm Mm-hmm. But then she's also got at the end, forgive Dave. Mm-hmm. Well, this is obviously, Dave is 
shall we say, the major male character in her life. And what she plans to do on Christmas Day is make up with Dave. Yeah. So then we go into the dream. Reading back, we go into the dream, and you've got stuff from the thing from another world. They're on the North Pole. Stuff from Alien. These creatures in the dream, we see them as facehuggers. And to be honest... At the end, when we come out of the dream, they're still facehuggers. So the alien thing is probably partially coincidence, except we only see them dying at the end. So there's, so to my mind, there's a possibility that the way that we see them in the dream when they're actually doing scenes from the alien movies where they're dropping out of the ceiling and stuff, that's part of the dream that maybe she's brought to it from the fact that she was intending to watch Alien. But the important thing is, you've got the Doctor and Clara come into this dream, and Clara doesn't know at this stage it's a dream. The Doctor suspects it's a dream, but isn't quite sure yet. But Shona also has on her note to forgive Dave. Now, the Doctor and Clara come in and forgive one another inside the dream. Is Mm -hmm. Shona still having a certain amount of control at this point? Is, I mean... Presumably the Doctor and Clara would have forgiven each other anyway, but the fact that they do it so quickly suggests to me that possibly this is the influence of Shona's aspect of the dream rubbing off on those two and them moving forward with something that they perhaps wouldn't have done quite as quickly. I don't know, had you considered that and does that sound possible? I hadn't considered considered that, no, as far as Shona being the the guide. um, Yeah. To... to Two two things that that uh, uh, I'd really love to to uh, talk about on that is number one is I, I think it is a case of the Doctor and Clara would have gone down that road anyway. Yeah. The the timing of which I don't know if is really all that relevant because to my mind it would be a case of this is the first time they've had it they've seen each other had a chance to talk since yeah the parting since the parting in the cafe and I. I could see like the guilt of of the lies they told each other, kind of getting getting to the point where they'd want to just they'd want to get things off their chest very quickly. So I don't think I don't think the timing is a big thing as far as the doctor knowing what or thinking or having having an inkling as as to what's going on. I think that uh, he, as from his introduction to the story, he's very very aware of what's going on because. As soon as the yeah, TARDIS yeah. materializes, he walks out of it and says to Clara, I want you to go inside the TARDIS. And so she does. And uh, he goes to talk to Santa. And um, the the culmination of, the, of that uh, conversation is the doctor says, I know what's going on. And Santa says, by the end of the day, you're going to be thankful for my help. So they, yeah, yeah, he, he know he knows he knows from the get go that that they're in this kind of a situation. Yeah, he knows they're in some kind of a situation like that. I don't think it's till he gets into the base that he knows yeah. that it's the dream crabs. Uh, I, yeah, I mean until until Santa actually brings <clears throat> the specimen jar yeah. in with the the dormant crab. Yeah, yeah, and that's the point at which he. To, to me, that's the point at which he says, right, what I suspected is what's happening. And here we are. This is the situation. <clears throat> but the forgiveness. Yeah, you're right. It's probably just coincidence. But it just struck me as I wonder if Stephen Moffat had put that on that note deliberately. Because he didn't have to write that at the end of that note of things she was going to do on Christmas Day. It could just be no. that that's a coincidence. But obviously Stephen Moffat has, you know, written it down for it to be on that note. So he must have I, known what he was doing. 
Moffat do- Moffat rarely does things uh, without without forethought. Yeah. Or so it's so it seems at any rate. I think it's probably just coincidental that we have something about forgiving Dave at the end because it's we have this forgiveness in the in the episode, and I can I can definitely see why a parallel would be drawn or could yeah. be drawn. But I, I think it's just a case of you know it's Christmas, it's a time of togetherness and and forgiving and, and kind of yeah. thing anyway. So I don't think that one played into the other. And actually, forgiving Dave ties in with the whole uh, every Christmas is somebody's last Christmas theme. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, as um, Danny Pink says, or the pseudo Danny Pink says, Christmas is the time when people get together because it might be the last time that they do. Mm-hmm. So Christmas Day, it's the theme of the story, isn't it? To forgive it and to come back together. And so it's probably just he's probably just tying up the theme in a bow. Yeah, it's it's an element of it, not the catalyst for it. Hmm. Right, here's a question for you. Something that's come up on the internet a bit. Was it... Uh, what, they have drawn inspiration from Alien. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? And the thing from another world and everything else as well. But, you know, people will go on the internet and they will say, oh, it's so unoriginal for them to do facehuggers in Doctor Who. What's wrong with that? Yeah. Really, what's what's wrong with that? Um, there's no such thing as an original idea any longer. The, uh, no matter no matter how original seeming a, a screenplay or a teleplay or a script might be, it's still influenced by the life of of the writer, and and they, you know, no no writer is is uninfluenced by. Oh wow, it's just weird circular logic. Um, there's no right. such thing as yeah. a, there's no such thing as a writer that hasn't been influenced by. Other things, whether it's a particular whatever movie writer director doesn't matter. There's there's something that they're taking from their life and putting into the script every single time. Does it matter if it's uh, they had a, a neighbor called Jack who who set their dog on fire once upon a time, or does it matter that it's a Ridley Scott film? No. <laughs> okay, I'm waiting for the Doctor Who episode with a guy called Jack who sets his dog on fire now. <laughs> Didn't that happen in The Thing from Another World, anyway? The John Carpenter version? I've honestly never uh, seen The Thing. Oh, you haven't? I have not. Oh, there is a scene in... I'm sure it's been years since I've seen it. I'm sure there's a scene with a dog on fire in The Thing. I could be mm. wrong. But, coming at the alien thing from another way, okay, we're not the first to say it, but if the Philip Hinchcliffe, Robert Holmes years weren't Doctor Who just taking things from everywhere and not mm-hmm. bothering to disguise it at all. Steve, when Stephen Moffat puts that line in about um, you have a horror film called Alien, no wonder you're always getting invaded, he's just basically saying, look, everybody's been getting away with this in Doctor Who for years. I'm not just going to get away with it. I'm going to make a little joke about it too so that people know that hmm. I know that I'm doing it. Sort of thing. It's it's a very, 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 very important point to be raised that the Hinchcliffe era, which is seen as by many people anyway, the best ever, yep. was nothing nothing more than a bunch of, of rip off jobs. Absolutely. You know? In fact most of those stories don't have an original idea to rub together and yet they're no. still brilliant. I mean, King Kong, well, strictly speaking, that wasn't quite Hinchcliffe yet, but uh, yeah. um, Frankenstein and, and, you know, there's there's uh, just almost everything is a take of something else. In fact, most of those stories are 
probably three different two or three different films that they've kind of melded together as well a mm. lot of the time. Like the Brain of Morbius is not just Frankenstein, but also She. Do you know She, the one about the... Well, all the no. stuff with the Sisterhood of Khan is... Oh, even down to the costumes, which are almost exactly the same as the ones in the Hammer film. There's a Hammer film called She, which is an H. Ryder Haggard Haggard novel that they've adapted. And the whole stuff about the Sisterhood of Khan is straight out of She. In fact, the Kettlewell robot in a robot, you've got like two or three different influences there as well. Obviously, there's the King Kong thing, but the whole think tank thing as well. Ah, there's all sorts of things going on there. He's got three different influences here, mm-hmm. but he's only taking a tiny fraction from each. The thing from another world is set at the North Pole and obviously there's some kind of an alien invasion. But the plot in Last Christmas doesn't follow the plot in The Thing from Another World remotely. Then he's got the facehuggers out of Alien. And, of course, Miracle on 34th Street. They question whether Santa Claus is the real Santa Claus in Last Mm -hmm. Christmas. But it's hardly like they're putting him on trial, like he was in Miracle on 34th Street. But the facehuggers in Alien is all they've taken from Alien. The facehuggers, nothing else about Last Christmas, remotely resembles Alien. But if you look at the story that Stephen Moffat's telling about these dream crabs, in order to have the story that he wants to tell, where they're dissolving your brain, but causing you to dream pleasant things to allow them to get away with doing it, they have to be attached to the head, right? Mm-hmm. And in order to have the stuff about the four people who've got the dream crabs on their heads being the same four people as the four who are dreaming, you have to have those crabs not just on their head, but covering their face entirely. Mm -hmm. So uh, when you get to this point, when Stephen Moffat's got this far, he's got two choices. He can either embrace the fact that they're like the face huggers from Alien and make a joke of it, or he can try and go in the opposite direction and do something that doesn't remind you of the facehuggers in Alien, in which case people would have just said, oh, that's just like the facehuggers in Alien, and he doesn't even realise he's done it. Mm-hmm. So he might as well admit to what he's done, because he couldn't have told that story without doing it. Yeah, no, that's, that's very true. Uh, one one element I would have liked to have seen changed would have been uh, something covering the, the, pa- the name patches on the on the vests uh, worn by the staff. Uh, something covering them. Yeah, it's just something, whether it's something, like even if it's just like a dreamlike uh, haze or just something to obscure it, because you know they're not legible, but, I mean, when you, you think have, the characters there would have noticed by that point? Yeah, yeah. yeah there's yeah. there's a certain logical disconnect there. That said, it is very explicitly stated by the Doctor that because everything is uh, a dream and... Uh, you know, everything is, you know, seems to move really quickly and, and, uh, there's, yeah. there's gaps and all that. Um, I can, I can accept that as an explanation as to why they might not have noticed that these, the, the so-called sleepers are the, uh, well, are, there are, are there are two other explanations as well, potentially one is something I was about to bring up anyway, but the other one is, uh, you know, when they go into that room, they can't look at those four people or else they'll get up and start attacking them. So they're not mm. going to see the names, are they? True. Um, but then they that, would have that the said, first time they went in there, you would assume. Well, they, they would have had to have learned yeah. at some point 
that not to they look. couldn't look at them or think of them. Unless, so, unless that is, and this is what I was going to raise a few minutes ago, unless that is, all six dreams started simultaneously with what we saw. And the reason why I say this is this. Santa Claus. Now, at the start mm. of Last Christmas, you've got the scene on the roof with Santa Claus. And although Shona is the person who has devised the dream, as it were, and although she has Miracle on 34th Street further down her list, Clara is the one who first dreams up Santa Claus. Because mm. I don't think, I don't think the scene in the TARDIS at the end of Death in Heaven takes place until either afterwards or concurrently with Santa appearing on Clara's roof. Because, as the Doctor says later on, when you dream, hours go by in minutes. So my but assumption he al- is... He, he also had said that the, the dream crabs found Clara because he was under first. Oh, that's true. That's very true. I was going to... I was going to posit that Clara dreams Santa landing on her roof and then that's the point at which Santa knocks on the Doctor's door in the TARDIS at the end of Death in Heaven and the very next action of the Doctor after we see that sequence at the end of that episode is to arrive on Clara's roof at the start of this one because it strikes me that he has less time to get through that amount of action than Clara does in her conversation on the roof. But you're right, he does. He says that the dream crab must have gone and found Clara after it had found the Doctor, unless, of course, the dream crab finds Clara first and then goes to find the Doctor. Yeah, I mean, he he could have it wrong. Yeah, he's just supposing that, isn't he? Yeah. And at which point the Santa Claus narrative ties together when Shona brings in Miracle on 34th Street. But anyway, the the point with that is, if all those dreams... The Doctor says that uh, these people could be anywhere in the world geographically, right, to be having this dream. They don't need to all be in the same place. They could be anywhere. But then he also says they could be anywhere temporally, anywhere in time. And that suggests to me that wherever you are in time, in order to be involved in this dream, all those dreams would start together. Because Mm. if a person's three days hence in the dream... Their dream would start at the same time as the person's dream three days ago because they're in a different time zone, right? Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you know, if the two if the two people were dreaming in the same, same time zone, one person could come into the dream after the other one. But if you're three days away or three weeks away or three decades away or whatever, the two dreams would start together because that would be how the dream crabs would tie them up. Now, if they can be in different time zones, and the way the dream crabs tie them up is by bringing the starts of the dreams together, they must do that with all the dreams because it wouldn't make any difference to the dream crabs, uh, you know, whether it's three seconds or three minutes or three weeks or three decades. They'd tie the starts of the dreams together. So what I'm suggesting here is that when the Doctor and Clara arrive at the end of that scene where Shona is going into the infirmary and the other three are guiding her through when she's listening to Slade, that's the start of their dream as well. So the Doctor's dream that starts in the TARDIS with Santa knocking on the door, Clara's dream that starts with her waking up in bed to the sound of Santa crashing on her roof, and Shona 
starting at the door to the infirmary and the other three characters in the control room, all those things happen at exactly the same time. I think they must do. It's entirely possible. Uh, all we know for fact is the Doctor and Clara come into the, the main shared dream later on than the <clears> initial <throat> four, but we have no idea when those four necessarily mm. started their dream, because it, it may have been simultaneously, it may have been one after another. It's, it's, it, we have no way of knowing, because we are, we're already into the so-called yeah. action by the well, time this the is, Doctor arrives. Yeah, this is the weird thing about it is, you can't really... I mean, I can say... I see the dreams as all starting together, but there's no way you can prove it one way or another. Yeah. Because as the doctor says later on, they're all dreams, and, you know, there's going to be holes and discrepancies. But I just think it's fascinating the way he's right, because because when you sit down to write something, you are thinking through all this stuff as you're writing. You have to, otherwise you could never get through the plot. When you come up with a plot like this, you have to you have to really map the journey out in order to be able mm -hmm. to sit down and write the characters. So Stephen Moffat must have been thinking with this stuff. Well, a lot of writers also say they, they you know, get the ending first and work backwards, so... And I'm pretty yeah. sure that's how Stephen Moffat works. Uh, I imagine so. I mean, if you think back to uh, was some one of the recent um, uh, Doctor Who magazine releases, he talked about uh, Series 9, how he has the, the cliffhanger to the penultimate episode. That's right, yeah, and yeah. Uh, not necessarily giving any impression that he knew what was going to happen before that. Exactly. If he knows what the cliffhanger is, he must know what the resolution to the series is, because you'd have to have the resolution in order to have the cliffhanger. Mm -hmm. So obviously, he knows where series nine goes, and but now he has. Ne yeah, but now doesn't, he ne doesn't necessarily know the build-up, though. Exactly. Now he comes back and plots out the journey, but knowing where it ends up. And this was, I think this was about six months ago or something he said this, wasn't it? This was before Series 8 had even started broadcasting, I'm pretty sure. So it was certainly a few months ago. So if he knew what the resolution to Series 9 was, something like 18 months in advance, that gives him plenty of scope to drop a couple of little clues into things like Death in mm -hmm. Heaven and Last Christmas. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Which is where the scene in the Bells of St. John, where Clara gets given the phone number, comes into play. So, okay, right, before I get into Clara and the Doctor and Danny Pink, because there's a massive stuff to say about them, isn't mm. there? Oh, yeah. There's been a lot of talk about Shona, and because she calls the Doctor a magician, whether she would... Whether she would be intended to be the companion who takes over from Clara if Jenna Coleman had decided to leave at the end of this episode, or whether indeed she's coming back in the first episode of next year as the Magician's Apprentice. Mm -hmm. But Santa also describes the Doctor as a magician, and way back in The Caretaker, or one of the episodes last year, the Doctor describes himself as a magician as well. But my question to you, therefore, is do you see Shona as a character that Stephen Moffat has ever had any intentions as being a companion for. Even going back to the classic series where at least once, if not more than once, the Doctor has, you know, um, espoused the axiom about uh, uh, any any sufficiently advanced science is indistinguishable mm. from magic. I don't know that the multiple ma magician references mean anything. And, um, I mean with the magician's apprentice being announced as the title for 
episode one of series nine, one would assume a tie-in is there, but Moffat's pulled the rug out from under us before. Um, he has, Shona... but just to go off on a quick sidebar on that, I've got to assume that a new companion is starting in the first episode of the next series, and that would be the magician, the magician's apprentice. <laughs> I have to uh, assume that because Moffat doesn't always disguise things. Sometimes he does no. go the obvious way, doesn't he? Well, part of it as well is is he he loves to signpost things. He loves to put things in plain sight where you're not going to see them until yeah. until there's some some lines spoken three quarters through an episode where everything just clicks in your mind and you're like, oh, of course, how did I not see that? Yeah, it's like the doctor says in this one. You know what I hate about the obvious? Missing it. Absolutely. Um, and that's that's a very Moffat esque thing. As far as Shona being a potential companion, um, she seems to have. It's only been a handful of days since the this first aired, but uh, she seems to have have uh, garnered some popularity amongst the fans. And one thing, so we don't know anything about the the time zones of of any of these people of the four, no. other than to know that Shona is some at least somewhat contemporary. If she's talking about mobiles and texting and things like that. Yeah. So she's not going to be from the 18th century or anything like that, obviously. So, I mean, in 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 the vein of the Doctor Who companions, well, at least since the, the series re- returned, uh, always being contemporary, you know, 20th, 21st century yeah. Earth females, she could definitely be be a companion based on that. Having said whether that, she's gonna whether whether she's gonna come back, I don't know. Um, so certainly a funny enough character, and um, I don't know if she's different enough from Clara because I mean, so the uh, I was actually curious. I looked up the, I looked up the act- actress who played Shona, and she is actually as we record this yesterday, just turned twenty eight years old. So she's of a similar age to Clara. So. Well, actually, I looked them both up, and they are exactly the same age. They were born okay. six months apart. There you go. Yeah. So, do we do we necessarily need yet another? I mean, yes, Donna aside, really, we've always had a twenty-something. Yeah. Okay. Well, no, Rose was nineteen, played by a twenty-three-year-old, whatever. Yeah. But same we've, had, we've had we've had an es- essentially a twenty-something uh, um, female companion, and do we need another one? I mean, if we get one, I don't think I don't think people are really going to be in that much of an uproar. But I'd I'd like to see something different. Yeah, I I think there's a reason why they do it, and this is, I mean, there's a reason why they have somebody from contemporary modern Earth, and that is because identification with the audience or, or by yeah, the audience. Yeah, and when we say identification with the audience, I don't think it's as simple as just oh, they're from the same time as I am, so it makes it easier for me to see the programme through their eyes. But I think on a slightly more complex level, if you put a character in like Jamie, who's not supposed to know how things work, or a character in like Vicky, who should know way more about how things work than we do, then you don't have a character who the Doctor can expect to know all the things that the audience at home know and expect not to know anything that he would have to explain to the audience at home. So it's not quite just a, um, yeah. identification, it's exposition as well. Having somebody of the same period as the audience at home allows you to exposit anything that would need explaining to the people watching from the 21st century, right? That said, so basically what you're, basically what you're saying is we're never going to see another Zoe. 
and unless may, you have we, two we, at the same may, time. Of exactly. Course. I was just yeah. going to say that. Oh, we, sorry, we may, sorry. We, we, we may not have another Zoe as a sole companion to the Doctor, but if we have a Zoe and a Jamie, where Zoe can kind of step in the middle and and, and do the the Doctor esque exposition to the uh, less knowledgeable companion, as Zoe did all the time to Jamie, or even in some cases as Jamie did to Victoria. Yeah, um, yeah. That 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 as a dynamic could work, and you're not like... going to get that kind of a dynamic if you have. A 21st century 20-something woman joining Clara on the TARDIS. No, exactly. Well, and, and as a perfect example of what you're just talking about, Rose, when Captain Jack joins the TARDIS, he's from yeah. the 51st century, but if she's from the 21st, so it still works because you get people explaining to Rose what needs yeah. explaining to the audience at home. It works perfectly. Or, or even to a degree, Rose and Adam. And, of course, this then depends... Yeah, Rose and Adam. And this then depends on... Clara staying, well, not necessarily throughout, but they've said now, and we have to take them on trust for saying it, Clara's going to be in the whole of the next series. Here's another question. Do you think there was ever a point at which it wasn't already set in stone that Jenna (laughs) Coleman was staying throughout? I know that she and Stephen Moffat have both teased that she may have left after the Christmas special, but I'll say this outright. That Christmas special is written to facilitate the character of Clara and the Doctor making up to the point where she can get back into the TARDIS and go travelling again. I don't think that episode would have been that way if there'd been any possibility she might have left. And I would say it's written well enough that it could have could have facilitated her departure as well. Well, there's that scene where she's the old Clara... Yeah. But then I think if it finished on that scene, the rest of the episode... Well, okay, two things. The rest of the episode would have felt like a lie because the episode was building towards them travelling again. But by the same token, that would have made the fact that the rug was pulled out from beneath them at the end all the more tragic. So, yeah. yeah. Also, also, had it been done in that way and... and old Clara was left to be old Clara and, and didn't resume traveling with the doctor as young Clara. Yeah. There would have been too many comparisons to Rory and Amy as well. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, that's very true. So I think, well, in spite of what Stephen Moffat said about Jenna Coleman kept them guessing right up to the last minute about whether she would stay, I think it was always planned in his head that she would stay. And I think the, I think that The scene with the old version of Clara, which was obviously written as a dream, but could perhaps have been rewritten another way. I think that was his get out clause. If at the last minute she said, right, I'm not staying. But I think he always assumed she would. I mean, in this this day and age, two two big things really come into play, in my mind anyway. One is um, Jenna Coleman, as an actress, needs to know what she's doing for work. Yeah. Um, or if she's going to take time off, or, or whatever. She she needs to plan her life. Yeah. And as a result, I can completely see her saying, you know, wherever. Um, halfway through Series 7, you know, she could have said it uh, at, uh, during Asylum of the Daleks, for all we know. Or any place, any time after that, that, yes, I want to stay on for Series 9, just so I know what my next job is going to be, or how long I'm going to be working for this one, so I can look at whatever after the fact. But... 
um, between between the the you know the, the needing to know and the contractual requirements from the BBC and all that, um, that's that's definitely one big aspect. Hmm. Uh, and number two, as has been said by Coleman, I think it was Coleman and Moffat at the was it the press screening for last Christmas? Something about how uh, they 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 knew and they realized that because Series Nine wasn't going to start filming until after last Christmas went out, they could tease that they could have a bit of fun mm. with it. Yeah. Which is, you know, which is the big trick I think Russell T. Davis dropped when he was doing The Next Doctor. Because when The Next Doctor was broadcast, they hadn't started filming on uh, The Waters of Mars and Planet of the Dead yet. And But but by that point, Tennant had announced... Was it well, the that's National, exactly it. National, it. National Television Awards, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, he announced that he was leaving... Yeah. And then the very next thing is Russell T. Davis writes a story called The Next Doctor. Well, it wasn't called The Next Doctor when he wrote it, but yeah. But he could have and this is well, this is a this is what I would have done thing. If I'd have been writing a story that was due to go out before David Tennant started recording his last three stories, but after he'd announced he was leaving, I would have called it the next doctor, and I would have found out who Stephen Moffat was casting as the next Doctor and stuck him mm. in the story. <laughs> in a Colin Baker-style uh, appearance. Well, um, no, as the Doctor, maybe. Stephen Moffat mm. actually does this. He sticks, even though it's just his eyebrows for a fraction Capaldi. of a second, Capaldi, he sticks yeah. Peter Capaldi. I said this about, I don't know, a year or 18 months ago. I said Stephen Moffat is the only writer who's ever, Doctor who, who's ever done Doctor Who who might stick the last Doctor in after he's regenerated into somebody else and he did that with Matt Smith in Deep Breath and might stick the next Doctor in before the previous Doctor's regenerated regenerated mm-hmm. into him and he did that with <laughs> Peter Capaldi and, in Day of the Doctor and of course he did the inverse as well by bringing Matt Smith back for part of Deep Breath yeah yeah absolutely he but, ties um, it off ties it off at both ends you know, I for think... the for the for the next doctor, just to continue that digression, yeah, yeah. I think the tr- I think the main trick that was missed was introducing David Morrissey, or, or or well, positioning David Morrissey via the the promotion for the show as the next doctor when it had been announced that Tennant was leaving, but he was sticking around for a handful of specials afterward. Yeah, the, you know, had, had they not made the announcement relative to the specials, there might have been a greater surprise when it wasn't actually David Morrissey as the next doctor. And why did? Rusty Davis not wait till further into the episode to reveal to the watching audience yeah. who Jackson Lake was because yep. the tension just dissipated really didn't it in the opening 20 minutes oh I just did he find out around about 20 minutes in and the rest of it is like oh okay You're, yeah it's... I actually like the next doctor and I'll come back to that in a minute because I want to bring the next doctor up in context sure. of something else I want to say about this but to carry on, go on. Sorry, I just cutting you off. No, there. no, no, no. You, you already had. I'm just going to take a sip of my cider. Okay, I was going to take a sip of water. I'm nearly out, <laughs> so we can't go on for too much longer. Um, I was about to say something else then about what were we talking about there? We were talking about oh, what we said a few minutes ago is something else I wanted to bring up about this episode. That is okay. Series eight has been all about, and this is series eight, episode thirteen. There's no question of that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so Series 8, because he's got this gap, 
And this is another thing I love about Stephen Moffat. When he knows he's got a gap or something coming up, or when he knows there's a split series, he will use the split in order to accomplish something. He won't just have six stories and then a gap and six more stories. He will do something in the first half that leaves you lingering for three months in between before he comes back and resolves it. And while people didn't think the resolution to the baby aspect in series six was particularly good. I don't think that's what Stephen Moffat was actually intending for the lingering the thing to be. The more I think about, so when I when I first watched Let's Kill Hitler in in 2011 when it came out, yeah, I wasn't I wasn't a great fan of it. And on the whole, I mean, it's uh, as with many things, as as nostalgia kicks in, it it does get better uh, as time goes on. But the one brilliant genius thing that Moffat did was. So he introduces Amy Pond as as the the baby of Rory and Amy at the end of A Good Man Goes to War. And what does he do at the start of Let's Kill Hitler? He doesn't talk about that. He introduces a different incarnation of the same character in Mel's. That's yeah. brilliant. Absolutely right. And that's what I was just going to say is that the thing that he leaves lingering is not where's the baby, but what he leaves lingering is how does the baby get to be <laughs> River Song? And that's the thing that he resolves at the start after the gap. So he leaves three months while that lingers. And then the way he resolves the question is, like you say, is brilliant. It's a deception because he, you think you're looking at one thing and what he actually does is he throws you a real googly hmm. because you're looking in the wrong direction. It's so brilliant. You're saying, you're saying, you're saying the true magician is Moffat. Yeah, absolutely, I'm saying that. And why that is relevant is because he knew damn well that at the end of 12 episodes of Series 8, he had a gap of approximately a month before Christmas. And I don't know if you read my review on the Starburst website, but I was absolutely convinced at the end of Death in Heaven that that was it for Clara. I thought she mm. was gone because that was a real full stop on her character. Mm -hmm. And when somebody puts a full stop on a character, that's as tragic as that. It's like Donna and Rose. You don't want it to carry on because when you see Donna come back in the end of time, it undermines the way her character finished. And when Rose comes back in series four, it undermines Doomsday. <laughs> it, so, does. it also it also doesn't help that Billy Piper forgot how to do the, her accent. Yeah, <laughs> but Stephen Moffat loves to take things that Stephen uh, that Russell T Davis did and kind of modify them. So what he has done is he has taken the idea that Russell T Davis would leave his companions with an absolute tragedy and then couldn't help himself but bring them back and in some way undermine that. So Stephen mm -hmm. Moffat said, right. I've got this gap of five weeks. What I'm going to do is I'm going to leave series eight with Clara having a tragedy every bit as bad as the ones that Rose and that uh, Donna had. But, and here's where he twists the knife. He says, I'm going to make it a tragedy of Clara's own making because if Clara had only told the truth in that restaurant, the tragedy mm. wouldn't have happened. So not only has he left her, in just as tragic a place as those other two characters and twisted the knife and made it a tragedy of her own making because he knows he's got this six-week gap that's like the gap between a good man goes to war and let's kill Hitler. He says that's not going to be where those characters finish. I'm just leaving that there to tease the audience and in five or six weeks' time I can actually finish the story 
the way the story was always set to finish if I hadn't stuck that scene in at the end of Death in Heaven that twisted the knife on a tragedy that wasn't mm. actually a tragedy at all. Because Stephen Moffat loves a happy ending, whereas Russell T. Davis loved a tragic one. Yeah, um, and even with the, the reasonably tragic ending of Amy and Rory, I mean, Amy, Amy's return, well, quote-unquote return in, in uh, Time of the Doctor is... In his imagination, drastic, really, drastic, isn't it? it is, but it's yeah. also drastically different from how Rose or Donna were brought back, or even more Martha, Ex for that matter. Yeah, exactly. And when Amy and Rory leave, although it's a tragedy for the Doctor, it's not a tragedy for Amy and Rory because they leave no. to have a happy life. No, other than the tragedy of no longer being with the Doctor, but they're ready yeah. to move on anyhow. So exactly. In fact, well, they already they already had moved. on. Pretty much, two or three was, times, in fact. Yeah, well, as, as long as long before as the end of the God Complex, yeah. Exactly, yeah, that's right. And so th they were already on borrowed time ever since then. And in fact, if you look at the way Series 6 starts, at some point they've already moved on anyway after the wedding at the end of the Big Bang because at the start of Series 6, they're not travelling with the Doctor then. Yeah. So at some point, those characters, or I say those characters, Rory hadn't, been a traveling companion up to that point full-time anyway at some point amy between the big bang and the impossible astronaut has already taken a step back <coughs> and this is an innovation that stephen moffat has brought into doctor who this these are the first characters amy and rory who aren't full-time traveling companions other mm -hmm. than during the unit years the unit years is something a little bit That's different. That's also a vastly different setup in, in the first place. Exactly. But none of the other characters who've ever been companions, other than during those years in the 1970s, have ever not been full-time traveling companions. You could, you could argue Sarah Jane to a degree. But that was during the unit years, and as the unit... No, I mean, even, even, even thinking afterward, such as her re reappearance in The Five Doctors. Oh, sure. Example. When she reappears, but... Yeah. As a regular that's, companion. That's not, it's, it's, it's by no means the same, no. Mm. So Stephen Moffat has innovated by bringing in a regular companion who's not a regular travelling companion. And he does this with Amy and Rory to a degree. And then after mm. the God Complex, he does it that much more. So that in the first half of Series 7, they're not travelling with the Doctor in an ongoing basis at all. They're coming in and out for the individual stories. So he starts Series 7 with Clara doing the same thing. And the reason he does that in the second half of Series 7 is so that by the end of Series 7, Clara can have gone from being somebody who looks after other people's children, like a professional babysitter, childminder, whatever, to somebody who can have educated herself to the position of teacher at Coal Hill School. And she's six years older in the day of the doctor than she was in uh, the bells of st john so this is hmm. why stephen moffat's carried this thing on for the first uh for the second half of series seven but having decided to do that for that very simple reason so that he can get that character from one entirely different place to another he then says to himself okay so next year series eight new doctor clara can either become a full-time travelling companion with the 12th Doctor, or 
she can continue the way she's been going, where she is day-tripping with him. In which case, you can either just have that as a kind of non-story, as it was in Series 7, where they were just picking up and dropping off for no other reason than that they were picking up and dropping off. Or you can actually use that. And this is where he brings in Danny Pink, so that he can have a companion for the first time ever in Doctor Who, who has a home life and an away life, and the series becomes the story of how those two lives come together. Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot of complaints that because he's done it like this, that Series 8 is all about Clara, whereas I would contend that it's not. I would say that that's another one of Stephen Moffat's sneaky deceptions. I would say it looks from the outside like it's the story of Clara and Danny, but what's actually happening is he has the first Doctor of a new regeneration cycle, the first body of the Doctor that shouldn't in ordinary circumstances exist. And so he gives this brand new Doctor all the guilt that comes of being born into a body that shouldn't exist and living a life that you know should be over, and who questions himself and says, as we saw in Into the Dalek, am I a good man? And so the Twelfth Doctor is one who is suddenly uh, much more down on himself. He's not the Doctor who goes out, saves people, solves things, but he's the Doctor who, to whom that still happens but only as a kind of accident around the fact that he doesn't know who he is anymore. And I think Series 8 has been the story of him rediscovering himself because Clara has another life. I think if Clara had been travelling in the TARDIS, you couldn't have told that story about the Doctor either, not just about Clara and Danny. I think it's only because Danny Pink is there and Clara's having that story that you can tell that story about the Doctor. Even... Even the even I was sorry to interject. Even even the the um, oh no, I was done. Yeah. Even the premise for listen wouldn't be there if that wasn't the case. No, absolutely. The the doctor the doctor thinks to himself when you're traveling alone, uh, you know that that's the whole point of listen or the whole the genesis of listen is is he grabs Clara to discover what happens with like is there this creature that evolved to be perfectly hidden and all that and and he doesn't think that if he's traveling with a companion. No, nope. it, ha- it just wouldn't happen. Totally, totally right. So back to last Christmas because we seem to have diverged again, or I do because <laughs> this is what I do, I suppose. So back to last Christmas and uh, the fact that Stephen Moffat leaves it on this lingering deception about where the story's going. And he's had this theme, and we've all talked about it on our various podcasts. He's had this theme throughout the entire series of the lying. And the catchphrase actually shut up, which appears in Last Christmas. Clara says it. I don't know if you noticed. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what? And this is the, I, I think this is the absolute brilliance of, uh, Last Christmas. He, he's told a story across 12 episodes of people lying to each other, and it ends on a lie, the biggest lie of all, that the Doctor finds Gallifrey and Clara finds Danny Pink. And they go their separate ways because of that lie. So the episode Last Christmas is about tearing back the lie and finding the truth. And Stephen Moffat writes it as an episode in which all the characters are dreaming and tearing back the dreams and finding the truth. 
Isn't that an astonishing piece of writing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, as, as we were kind of talking about earlier, he, he thinks things through. Mm. Simply put, I mean, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that as a, as an affront to what Russell, Russell T. Davis had done, who, you know, he obviously had future plans and, you know, seeding things like the mention of, of Torchwood toward the end of series one, or uh, even the first mention of, of uh, Mr. Saxon in the runaway bride. Yeah. He, he has, he's has these long-term plans, but he's got these long-term nuggets, whereas Moffat has these long-term grand ideas. Exactly. They both work in completely different ways. I think one of the biggest criticisms of Stephen Moffat is entirely down to the writer's tale. People have read the writer's tale and assume that Stephen Moffat's making it up as he goes along in much the way, same way as uh, Russell T. Davis did. And I just don't think that you can write the kind of stories that Stephen Moffat does if you're making it up as you go along. You only have no. to look at any of the other series he's done, even fairly minor things like Joking Apart. You have to know. If you're writing basically... I don't know if you've ever seen Joking Apart, but it's a series no. of... It's, it's it's set in the modern day, but it's a series of old-fashioned farces. A bit like in the Romans, where you've got all the characters running around and sort of missing each other in the corridors mm-hmm. and things like that. Uh, joking Apart is essentially that kind of thing. It's a sort of a chain of events that unravels, meaning that one of the characters in particular will have an absolute nightmare until you get to the end of the story and all the threads get tied back together. You can't write that unless you know how the threads are going to get tied back together because you can't write the places that those threads go to in the meantime without knowing what their destination is. This is yeah. Stephen. This is what Stephen Moffat does. So he I knows. Also, yeah. Sorry. I also have to think that the, I also have to think there's a, a a difference in there in the sense of of the security of knowing that Doctor Who is this massive property and it's going to be around for a while. So he has he has the room to play with. Whereas if you look at things like coupling, where it is really disjointed by comparison, but that's yeah. the, you know, it's, it's, it's a sitcom. He didn't necessarily know from, uh, series to series if it was going to get recommissioned. And by the time you get to series four of coupling, it's, it's nothing like it began with. But, no. um, at least with Doctor Who, he, he knew they were commissioned up to point X. So end of series nine, for example. Uh, he knew he was going to have Capaldi to minimum the end of series nine. So he's got, he's got the room to play with, whereas he might not have had that with, press gang or anything else in fact doctor who now is pretty much i mean not technically but it's pretty much commissioned up to about series 14 now or even 16 with this theme park that's about to go online in six years yeah they're not they're not gonna start a theme park with a major doctor who exhibition in six years time if the series has been off the air for three or four years are they well as far as the stuff that's going to be in that theme park is, is concerned I could see, potentially see Sherlock no longer being a going concern by that point. I could even potentially maybe see Top Gear not being a going concern by that point. But uh, I don't know. Well, that's 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 supposition. I mean, it's 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 not unfounded supposition, but it's still supposition. Oh, absolutely. I think what I'm really saying is not that there's definitely going to be Doctor Who in six years, but that as the BBC look at it now, they're expecting there to be Doctor Who in six years. Or a strong enough legacy if it's no longer going yeah. in six years, yeah. And in fact, here's another question, something that struck me the other day. Uh, 
people are always saying, oh, Stephen Moffat's been there for five years now and he's going into his six and it doesn't look like he's going anywhere. Can't the BBC get rid of him and get somebody else in? And I'm thinking it's more likely that having done five years, especially with the anniversary, it's more likely that Stephen Moffat would want to move on and the BBC are saying, oh, would you please stay because <laughs> we don't have anybody in mind to replace you with. Uh, as a repeat of of GMT's JMT. era, yeah, um, yeah, maybe. I mean, one one reasonably related facet is the um, the the outcry about the lack of female writers on Doctor Who, and and Moffat has gone on the record to say that it's not a case of them not wanting to bring in female writers; it's a case of them being unable because the the writers themselves keep saying no, or or like you know the timing doesn't work, or yeah. whatever. So I mean. If if they're having problems getting getting a writer of you know to represent half the gender on the planet, yeah, um, imagine imagine the 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 difficulties or the criteria required to fill his shoes. And, yes, I mean there's there's been how many names have been thrown out over the years? Um, oh, it's um, got to be at uh, least half. Matthew dozen, Matthew it? Graham or or yeah. Mark Gatiss or um, oh why can't I think of his name? Um, but Phil Ford. Neil, Neil, Neil Cross. Neil yeah. Cross. Phil Ford. I mean, there's been no shortage of names thrown out there. And, and I'm in sure fact, any one of them would make a good showrunner. But there's a difference between being a writer and a showrunner. Exactly. Every Jamie Matheson this year, he sure. comes in, does two good episodes. And people are saying, oh, he'll be the guy to replace Stephen Moffat. And I'm thinking, no. there's a big difference between writing a couple of episodes and being in charge of the whole damn thing. Yet weirdly, when Moffat was writing under RTD, everybody had this. There's this this mass shared perception that Moffat had to be the next guy. Yeah, and he, obviously he was. And and the amongst only, the the only thing amongst was, the writers that were there, he was he was the best choice. But that's not because he wrote the best stories. I mean, no matter how well received, uh, Empty Child or or um, uh, Blink were. The sheer fact is Moffat had experience as a showrunner in the past. Yeah. And when you look at this this other list of people, so Gatiss, sort of, Neil Cross, absolutely, Phil Ford, absolutely. So, I mean, there there are some candidates in there who would have the experience, but uh, it's still a huge jump. It is. It is not a show like any other show, really. And this is why they gave Stephen Moffat like something like 18 months to sort of uh, get himself into position before things really kicked off in the production of Series he, 5. According to what I had heard for rumour, and this is just rumour, I don't know for sure, it was around about summer 2007 when he actually agreed to take over as showrunner. Yeah. July 2007. And it was, of course, January 2010 before his first uh, his first thing went on the air and January 2009 before he cast his doctor. So, yeah, yeah, about 18 months. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And this is so if they're going to do it again, you have to assume because this, this is another sort of fan misconception that turns up every now and again is that, you know, the troubles that beset the 80s will happen again. But the fact is, during the 80s, top executives at the BBC didn't really care about Doctor Who. Nowadays, yeah. they absolutely do. So they're not going to repeat the mistakes of the past. What they're going to do is be very careful about how they treat their sacred cash cow. 
So whoever replaces Stephen Moffat will presumably, you know, be given the dotted line to sign on, again, something like 18 months to two years before work starts or whatever, yeah. And if that's the case, and Series 9 happens to be Moffat's last, that means whoever this person is, whoever he or she may be, has already signed on that dotted line. Yeah, that's what I was just about to say. Or could just be about to, because I've had this feeling for the last couple of months, ever since the start of Series 8, actually, I've had this feeling that he's going to do three with Peter Capaldi. Don't know why, the, I just got that feeling. I've, I mean, there, there were the... There were the media reports recently, the other week, however, however long ago it was at this point, uh, most of which were saying how Capaldi was guaranteed at least till the end of Series 9, and there were, there were some ones that kind of squeaked through that, that said he had actually signed up for, for three years, and if that's the case, then, yeah, you might be right. It's a possibility, certainly. You know when Stephen Moffat said, I know the cliffhanger for the penultimate episode of Series 9? Mm-hmm. Though, as we were just talking about a few minutes ago, you know, that just kind of struck me. Is he saying there, I know what the cliffhanger will be into my last ever episode as a writer of Doctor Who? Or because that wasn't the impression he gave in the way he gave the quote. The way he said the sentence was, I know where next series is going, in a way that suggests... I think it implies that there's going to be another one afterwards. I just mm. got the impression from the way he phrased that, that he had one more series to go after the one he was talking about. I could and be completely that, that, wrong, but... It could well be. And, I mean, as far as what he's got for plans for the show, the the obvious front runner would be the rediscovery of Gallifrey, whether that be the end of Series 9 or Series 10. Yeah. But that, that would seem like an obvious obvious note as it were to go out on i get the impression i mean this is something that happens every now and again terror of the autons episode four and legopolis part four as well the doctor and the master team up to see off the aliens after the masters made this dreadful mistake of bringing them to earth and then suddenly realized he can't control them after all Mm. you know i get the feeling that missy and the doctor will team up at some point I think this is something that Stephen Moffat might do, where they actually travel together in the TARDIS for, I don't know, two episodes or maybe three or four while they're looking for Gallifrey. I think he's got to... I think having done The Day of the Doctor, he has to go down that road at some point. I think it's a given. That's... uh, That certainly seems plausible enough. I mean, if nothing else, there's there's some precedent there with... with, uh... The Derek Jacobi master in, in uh, Scream of the Shulka. <laughs> yeah, there is. But um, it just it just seems that once you've put that... It's like with Russell T. Davis. Once he'd put the time war in, he couldn't ignore it, and he had to come back to it at the end of his tenure. It seems to me now, like with Stephen Moffat having put Gallifrey is out there somewhere, mm-hmm. even if they don't find it, I think he has to address it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, by showing us the Doctor looking for it, rather than just jotting down all these notes on blackboards, which we all assume is calculations to try and find Gallifrey. Obviously, we don't know for certain. But no, we don't. But also, um, again, tangentially, um, the the supposition that all these calculations on the chalkboard are his efforts to find Gallifrey. You would think that one of the first things he would do. I mean, pocket universe or not, one of the first things he might do 
would be to go to ten zero eleven zero zero by zero two from Galactic Center. Yeah, yeah. And just have a quick look uh, without having miss without Missy having to to prompt him to do so. Having said that, possibly he did immediately afterwards, and now she comes in and says Gallifrey's back, and he thinks it since been a I've looked thing. already, yeah. That, I mean, then again, there's also the the whole thing where Gallifrey is always supposed to be in its current, uh, in its present time. No such things going back, back into its past. But of course, that's been uh, <laughs> between between the Impossible Girl and Listen. That's that's been thrown out the window, I guess. So. Mind you, did you see Stephen Moffat's quote in Doctor Who magazine? I think the last one before. I'm just looking to see if I've got it close enough to pick it up and find it. Stephen Moffat said, Gallifrey's already back in our universe, in Doctor mm. Who magazine, in his production mm. notes column, about five week, four, three weeks ago, I'm not sure. Okay. No, which I haven't. Was, no, which was a bit of a surprise. I should see if I can find the actual quote. I've got it. Is that it? Yes. If I can find the actual quote. <laughs> uh... Oh. I mean, if that well, while you're hunting, I mean, if that's if that's the case, that would certainly make its reintroduction that much, that much easier. But I mean, it, the the rediscovery of Gallifrey doesn't have to be anything grand in the sense of it has to be this season long journey. It no. could be something that could be found with with relative simplicity and relative quickness, and in say the start, you know, episode one of a of a series. It doesn't have to be a, a full year. No, it doesn't. No, I was thinking more of a... Oh, I just... I always think, how would I do it? You know? And I would do it. I would do it with a character coming in in the first episode right at the start and saying, I know where Gallifrey is, a bit like Messi did at the end of the last series. And then that character either gets killed or for some reason they get split up and the Doctor never gets to learn the secret that this person was going to tell them. And then the Doctor goes off and has a couple of adventures in the same way as we had in Series 6. You know, the whole arc story was interspersed with individual adventures that had nothing to do with it. So Mm -hmm. you kind of... The arc that goes across the series is more of a novelistic one like you had in Series 6, where the episodes actually tie together as opposed to just prefiguring something that's going to happen later. And I think I would do Gallifrey like that. I would have maybe two or three junctures through the series where the Doctor makes a leap forward but doesn't quite get there until at the end of the penultimate episode of the series, there it is, Gallifrey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could buy that, sure. Anyway, we mentioned the day of the Doctor a minute ago, and uh, just in passing, I think that in many ways last Christmas, and listen... And Day of the Doctor form a kind of a trilogy in which the episode itself is almost metaphorically, subtextually, a story about how the series works. And at the same time, takes what's been happening in the series up to that point and in some way changes it so that coming out of that point, you're going into something different. So in the Day of the Doctor, we had, prior to the Day of the Doctor, Gallifrey's missing, uh, Gallifrey's destroyed rather, sorry, and then after Day of the Doctor, Gallifrey's only missing rather than destroyed. Coming into Last Christmas, the Doctor's still a broken man, and then we get Yippee-I-A, 
bloody diehard on the back of a sleigh. The only bit, <laughs> the only bit in Last Christmas that for me felt a bit wrong. But coming out of Last Christmas, the Doctor is no longer a broken man. He's a fixed man. And the same goes for Clara. And Listen kind of took everything you thought you knew about who the Doctor was and why the series was the way it was. And mm. coming out at the other side of that story, even with as little as Stephen Moffat did, because I don't think he really did all that much with it, but coming out of the other side of that story, you just have a new perspective on why the Doctor is the way he is. But also the episodes themselves, like I said, with Last Doctor, Last Doctor, Last Christmas, being with the dreams, a metaphor for the end of the lies, and the day of the Doctor having the moment being a metaphor for this sort of cataclysmic change in the series, and then... John Hurt's character coming in and being a metaphor for the classic series, whereas you've got Matt Smith and David Tennant representing the new series. And then in Listen, you have the whole, and I've said this before on the podcast, and I'm sure you've heard me, the whole scene with a coffee cup is a metaphor for how Doctor Who works. Mm. Or for, certainly for how Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who works, in that you deceive the audience into looking the other way so you can pull the trick. So all those three episodes felt to me like a trilogy, so I just wanted to throw that in there because it was just a thought I had. <laughs> Fair enough. I wonder if I wonder if any of that has anything to do with the the uh, the callbacks to listen that were in last Christmas. Oh, go on. Tell me what the callbacks were while I uh, while my brain tries to catch up. <laughs> uh, well, there there um, uh, three three and a half that that caught my eye. Uh, one big Clara under the table as she was under the bed and listen. Yeah, uh, with the, with the dream crab atop and of the, the course, mystery creature yeah. atop the bed, uh, the question as to um, what's under the, with the sleepers uh, under the sheets, you don't know what they are. Much like there's, you don't know what's under the bedspread and listen. Right, and of course the the messages on the blackboard. Oh, of course the messages on the blackboard. Yes, oh, it feels even. It just it feels to me like a trilogy. It really does. Oddly enough, because you know from the outside they don't look like a trilogy at all. But it just, they just, it just feels to me like they're all doing the same thing. Okay. You're, you're right. You're right. And there's the thematic, uh, thematic continuity. Mm. Thank you. Right. I have another big, big point to make. And we were talking about the next doctor. I, I keep saying a few minutes ago, but it was probably about <laughs> half an hour. Probably. We were talking about the next, I hope you don't mind us going on like this, mm -mm. but I'm enjoying this. We were talking about the next Doctor, and I think the next Doctor is different from Russell T. Davis's other Christmas specials. Not that I didn't enjoy Russell T. Davis's other Christmas specials. Actually, I think The Runaway Bride is underrated, and Voyager of the Damned, I think, is a tremendously entertaining episode, even if it doesn't <laughs> quite add up. But that's by the by. I think the next Doctor is the only one that actually tells a Christmas story. And by a Christmas story, and I've mentioned this before, but let's do it again anyway for the sake of it, seeing as we're here. The Christmas story, the nativity, is about Mary and Joseph undergoing a journey into a dark place where everybody turns their back on them until finally they end up in the lowest place on earth, in a stable. But then light comes into their life when a beautiful baby boy is born. So it's about a journey that gets progressively darker 
until you get to the end of it and you realize that that journey was worth taking because the result of that journey is something beautiful. Then you've got the three wise men who follow the star from a far and distant land and undertake not a journey into darkness, but a journey that is presumably, given how long the journey is and given, you know, the manner of transport that was all they had at their disposal back then, it was probably a journey with a certain amount of peril in it. And when you get to the end of the journey, what happens is not that they've gone into darkness and now have light. What happens with the three wise men is they've brought gifts for the baby. And although those gifts are gold, frankincense and myrrh, what they are essentially is representing a start in life for that baby. What those three wise men have essentially done is undertaken a long and perilous journey in order to give somebody the tools to make a life for themselves. And of course, the biggest journey in the Christmas story is the journey of mankind with the birth of Jesus being the motor that brings mankind out of a period of darkness and into a, a period of potential light. Not necessarily light, because it's down to each individual whether they save themselves in the eyes of God, but potential light. Jesus gives the individuals on a one-by-one -one basis the means by which to save themselves. So that is mankind's potential journey out of the darkness and into light. So the word that I've used about 15 times in the last two minutes, right, is journey. A Christmas story has to be, uh, no matter whether you're telling that in Doctor Who or whatever other series, if you're telling a Christmas story, you have to be telling a story whereby either you are helping somebody or you're going from the darkness and into the light. Do you see what I mean? I do, yeah. Right, so the next Doctor... Wouldn't, which, which I mean, obviously A Christmas Carol is very, very much on the nose anyway, but... Uh, oh, absolutely. Christmas Carol, the, the most, the most Christmassy of them all. Well, that's what I was coming to. Russell T. Davis, by and large, didn't do the journey. If you look at A Christmas Invasion, for instance, the Doctor's asleep, and then he wakes up. He doesn't undergo a journey to go from the sleep to the awake. You know, somebody drops a cup of tea, and that's what affects the change. One one could argue he undergoes a, a minor journey as far as he, as as when he wakes, he he says he doesn't know what kind of a man he is, and and he, he finds kind of himself finds a, yeah. finds a little bit of that out as as uh, the episode progresses from there on. But I would contend that by and large, Christmas Invasion is not really a Christmas story in that sense. No, and I would have said that the next Doctor with the character of Jackson Lake is the only Russell T. Davis Christmas story that actually is a Christmas story, as opposed to just a story set at Christmas. Whereas I would contend with Stephen Moffat that all of his Christmas stories have been Christmas stories, rather than just stories set at Christmas, except for The Doctor, The Widow and The Wardrobe, and I think that's why that episode doesn't work. All the others, The Snowman, um, Time of the Doctor, and particularly this one, and like you say, A Christmas Carol, the absolute best example of all, they're all Christmas journeys. I think that's what Stephen Moffat understands and does really well about Christmas. And he was mm. in a bit of a dark place himself at the time he wrote The Doctor, The Widow and The Wardrobe, which I think is why that one suffers and doesn't achieve what the rest of them achieve. 
But anyway, which is which is interesting because on uh, uh, Toby Haddock's Who's Round, he's got the the four part uh, four part interview with with Russell T Davis, and I've I'm not fully caught up. I haven't fully listened to the fourth part, but I'm partway through it. And oh, I've uh, not started Ru- the fourth part yet. I just downloaded ah. it and I hadn't got around to it. But go on, yeah. At, at, the, at the risk at the risk of spoilers, which don't, I don't worry, yes, all right, anyway. Yeah. Um, Russell D. Davis comments how he is such a huge fan of Christmas. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? You'd, you'd think that, I mean, it's not to say that what he put out wasn't fun to a degree, even though I still find the end of time loathsome beyond all recognition. <laughs> um, I like actually there, still... enjoy that story, but in spite <laughs> of itself. Mm. Nevertheless, uh, as somebody who, who, who um, admittedly, self-admittedly, uh, loves Christmas. He he does take a different approach. Yes. He does. I think what I, I... And this is not to denigrate him in any way. I think what Russell no, T. Davis no. loves about Christmas is the the, the bigness of it. Hmm. And so his, his Christmas episodes are like big movies in the Doctor Who mold, whereas Stephen Moffat's Christmas stories seem to be Christmas stories in the Doctor Who mold. I think that's where the difference is. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I was actually having a uh, a short debate at work um, this past week or week before about uh, the the more popular Christmas films and how so many of them aren't actually Christmas films; they just happen to be films set at Christmas. Um, yeah. So or... discussion discussion of Love Actually versus Die Hard versus Home Alone versus you know, whatever <laughs> is, is out there for for the more popular ones these days. And then, of course, a lot of the films that have sort of become well, certainly in this country, I don't know about in Canada, but for example, the Wizard of Oz is a Christmas tradition, mm. and yet there's no uh, there's no no mention of Christmas in that no. film at all. But no, there's, there's there's not there's not even a single snowflake in that film. No, but it is the journey. Wizard yeah. of Oz is about a journey, the same journey as is undertaken during the nativity in certain ways. Or one that represents a similar emotional journey, I should say. And that's... I suppose, in, in, in some ways, even a literal one in the sense of having the three characters that could, you know... I'm sure there are, are scholars and, and academics out there who have done this to death, but uh, I suppose but they could, could represent the three wise men. Absolutely right, because what, as I said earlier, what the three wise men do is facilitate a start in life for Jesus. Essentially, that's what they bring. And um, <laughs> although in Wizard of Oz, Dorothy—is it Dorothy? It's years since I've seen it. It's the character called Dorothy. Dorothy. Yeah, yeah. It, she is fixing those three characters, but also yeah. those three characters are enabling her to undertake the journey. <laughs> I do find it amusing that you're likening the three wise men to, to people who are starting somebody off on their own journey by giving them the, the means to do so. When it happens to be uh, a, a character, personage, whatever, uh, who, strictly speaking, doesn't really need that sort of a help when he's able to, you know, uh, have loaves and fishes fall from the sky or yeah, fashion yeah, water yeah. into wine or, or do any number of, of miraculous things that... Uh, uh, none of the rest of us can do that uh, would have gotten him through life just fine without a, a bucket of gold. Absolutely. But you know what I mean? That's kind of what it represents. It kind of represents Jesus, you know, having a start in life. 
I guess. Because the place where Mary and Joseph come to is a place where they've got absolutely no start in life at all. It's like that Mary and Joseph go down and down and down and down and then the three wise men turn up and all of a sudden it's gold and it's frankincense and it's myrrh. Do you know what I mean? It's, It's not the specific things, but it's the fact that all of a sudden this change can have been affected by the birth of this person. Yeah. Yeah. We're getting in some pretty weird territory tonight, Chris. <laughs> I don't think I'd have got into this territory with Simon and Lee, I tell you. Um, uh, Mark Mark may have gotten into it uh, had, had he been available, but I don't yeah, know. Yeah, maybe. Right, I'm out of notes. Apart from just to say, obviously, to spell it out, that last Christmas, obviously, as I was talking about Series 8, being actually about the Doctor's journey as seen through Clara, or as facilitated by Clara, as Clara has allowed the Doctor to grow and develop. And Last Christmas, obviously, is the last stage on that journey where the Doctor can go from, at the start of the episode, or at the end of the last episode, I should say, being where this story starts, being the guy who is so distraught not to find Gallifrey, even though he knew it wasn't really going to be there, that he starts hammering the TARDIS in a way we've never seen the character do it before, to a character who can take the reins off Santa and start flying the sleigh and stand up and start quoting, (laughs) what's he called, John McShane or whatever, John McLean from the Die Hard film. Or (laughs) para-quoting, I should say, because he doesn't do the... yeah. Yeah. Less said about that, the better. Do you know what we've not mentioned so far? Santa Claus. Mm. Nick Frost, great choice. Um, yeah, completely I mean, if, agree. If, if if for no other reason than you know Saint Nicholas, you had Nicholas Frost. Um, yeah, I mean that's such a, such a, a a wonderful thing. But um, he he did a very very fantastic job. I mean, at the end of the day, Nick Frost was doing what he always does. He's playing Nick Frost. Yeah, yeah. But but with the Santa twist, which worked really really well. Yeah, you've got to... I don't know who would have come up with that casting choice because I don't know where... I mean, I don't know Andy, how much... Andy, yeah. I'm going to give all the credit to Andy Pryor because he's, he's been such an amazing casting director for, well, for well, as long as the show's years, been yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, kudos to him because somebody at some point has got to look at that script and say, right, we need a Santa Claus, but we, know, we need a Santa Claus with a bit of an edge. Yeah. And they have to put two and two together and say, Nick Frost, yes, he's that character. Mm-hmm. Because he didn't have to play it like that necessarily, but to choose to play it like that. Because his character, have you seen Spaced? I've not. I've attempted to get into Spaced multiple times and I just cannot. No, I'm not hugely surprised actually. I think you need to have seen Spaced before you see Shaun of the Dead to really appreciate uh, it. Well, to a point, I've, I, I really I really adore the Cornetto trilogy altogether. Yeah. But I've just, I've never, never been in, uh, able to enjoy Spaced. But Nick Frost in Spaced is slightly different because, of course, this is Nick Frost right back at the very, very start. And even in Hot Fuzz, he plays a slightly drippy character, shall we say, who comes good by the end of the story. Whereas the character he's playing... You're right, he's kind of playing Nick Frost, playing Santa Claus, but also he's playing as an aspect of Nick Frost that Andy Pryor needed to look at Nick Frost and say, right, that actor can play that aspect of himself and capture 
Santa Claus, and he does. Yeah. Yeah, it, it wasn't just because he was fat and British. That's not the reason he got <laughs> cast as Santa. But yeah, that's fair enough. And he's great. He really is great. Every he's time, very enjoyable. Every time he comes into the... Because I'm not going to pretend there are, are not a few longeurs in that episode. There are a few moments where it seems to drag just a little bit. Which I think is, and, and what I'll say about that is every time Santa Claus turns up, he sparks it up no end. <laughs> but I think what Stephen Moffat's doing, and again, I don't know whether this is him answering his critics or whether it's possibly him saying, right, this is a Christmas episode and it's hugely complicated. So let's throw a few bones to the people watching at home who've only got half an eye on the telly. But he explains things a lot more in this episode than he usually does. And he also gives the audience time to absorb the explanations before moving on, which is not something that Stephen Moffat is recognised for. Oftentimes, no. yeah, oftentimes his explanations seem almost thrown away in the middle of a piece of action or before something else distracts your attention. But he, here he's doing it in a very different way. And that felt slightly odd to me. It felt just or a even... little bit... Go on, sorry. This is fine. Uh, or even uh, to get back to what we were discussing earlier, as far as uh, Moffat signposting the the resolution throughout this the episode, and you just may not see it in plain sight. Yeah. Shortly after, shortly after Santa's proper introduction, which might I add is an amazing. I'm talking about the one with the, the robots and the slinkies and the tangerines and the, oh yes. and the explosion and that was. Uh, who would have ever ever thought of introducing Santa into a story in that manner. I mean, obviously, yes, I'm disregarding his bit on the rooftop from beforehand, but his proper introduction to the story was, <laughs> that was something else. But shortly after that introduction, um, Shona even says, am I dreaming? Yeah, she does. Yeah. And this, this is, this is, what's that, a quarter, quarter of the way through the episode, something like that. And in so. fact, I think either just before or just after that, Either she or one of the other characters says something else as well. That's um, oh, pretty much the same thing. It, it happens twice. I'm sure it does. <coughs> Not quite the am I dreaming, but there's another great big hint drops either earlier or very soon afterwards. But yeah, it is. You're absolutely right. That's Stephen Moffat saying, here's the answer. And like I always say, he says, here's the answer before any of the characters ask the question, so that yeah. by the time the character asks the question, you've forgotten that the answer's already been given. It's exactly. A, it's a brilliant way to write. And people... And and moreover, he keeps getting away with it. Yeah. And I don't know how that happens. You'd think as an audience we would get... We would we would, we would would just be onto his methods and, and, and be able to figure things out in a more... You know, in a quicker manner, but nope. The only thing I'll say about this episode from having watched Stephen Moffat stories before is, or perhaps from knowing the type, is that about 10 minutes into the episode, I said to the people I was sitting watching it with, four people in the infirmary, four people in the control room, just keep yeah. your eye on those numbers. Mm -hmm. But then the other thing is that there are people who complain that Stephen Moffat's just repeating himself when he does things like that. And I think the only reason you even notice, necessarily, that he's repeating himself is because it's so good, it stands out. I think, I mean, if you look back at... We were talking about Hinchcliffe and Holmes earlier. If you look back at the Ark in Space, 
it's a story about an alien species that somehow managed to uh, impregnate, or that's not the word I'm looking for, but it, it's a it's a an effective enough word. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Impregnate a human being, and that human being then turns into a member of that alien species, which also happens in Planet of Evil, and also happens in The Seeds of Doom. It becomes a common theme throughout that period of the show. And nobody bats an eyelid because we're all looking back at it historically. Stephen Moffat, on the other hand, for example, writes The Weeping Angels, which is is a monster with a particularly um, interesting perceptional aspect. And that's in 2007. And then he writes another one, The Silence, in 2011. And then he writes another one at the end of this year, at the end of 2014, which is seven and a half years since we saw The Weeping Angel, with only the silence halfway in between. Now, Robert Holmes does it three times in a year in the 70s, and nobody moans. (laughs) Stephen Moffat does it three times across seven years in the modern era, and a certain sort of margin of fans is like, oh, it's just Stephen Moffat repeating himself. Mm -hmm. It's only... It's a common theme to his work. It's not in repeating himself. It's a common theme to his work. And the only reason you notice is because it is so good it stands out. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's definitely it. It's, it's less, um, I, I seem to remember mentioning this on, <clears throat> pardon me, on, on Radio Free Scarrow, uh, for the last Christmas interview there, how I was listening recently, recently to, uh, another podcast, the TARDIS Tavern, and one of the co-hosts on there was discussing how, Moffat does nothing but repeat himself. And yeah, I, I, I think. I mean, I, I, I can understand the perspective of of those who say such a thing, but I, I'm very much more inclined to agree with you in the sense that it's it's not him repeating himself; it's him putting his stamp on his work. Yeah, I think with Stephen Moffat, what he does is he he will tell. Okay, most stories take place on two or more different levels, which most people would say are the text and the subtext, right? Mm-hmm. So if you look at Stephen Moffat's stories on two different levels, what he's done with Series 8, and in particular in his Series 8 episodes, is tell a story about the Doctor that has never been told before. How the Doctor changes when the companion is the stay-at-home companion and her life impacts upon his... That story has never been told in Doctor Who in 51 years before. So Stephen Moffat is doing something, to use a word that you used an hour and a half ago, something unique in the series. But because his themes are his common themes, for example, the alien with a perception issue, or answering the question before the question's been asked so that the solution is in plain sight... Because those themes, like the subtext, if you will, are things that are common throughout his work. People accuse him of repeating himself when he's doing something utterly unique. And maybe it's because of those things that are common themes that make it acceptable for the sort of more casual viewer to subconsciously accept it as a part of the whole that is Doctor Mm. Who, as a part of a continuing story. Or, for the casual viewer, ones who don't watch week in, week out, religiously, yes. be, they may not have seen him do that before anyway, so it's all due to them. 
Great point. And even if they do, you know, the Weeping Angels were introduced so long ago, because as Doctor Who fans, we constantly see the whole thing all the time. You know, yeah. our mind is constantly on the whole thing. Somebody who saw the Weeping Angels once in 2007, and, you know, a couple of times when they've been brought back since, but only in that very first appearance was the perception thing the big deal. It's been seven years, seven and a half years since that happened. Mm -hmm. For a more casual viewer, that aspect of that story is not going to be something that's been playing on their mind for the last seven and a half years. How many, how many, how many series run seven and a half years to be able to repeat themselves in the first place? Yeah. You know, yeah. Let, let alone actually fulfill or, you know, do, do some repetition. Wow. But I don't, I mean, uh, you'd, you'd, uh, brought back Clara's, uh, the the aspect of Clara being uh, a unique companion as far as, as how she's treated with the home life and the TARDIS life and, and how they're getting on. One thing that was also, it's, this the, the last of the notes on my list is uh, one of the aspects that was brought up in Series 8 proper was uh, how she essentially became addicted to the Doctor and the Traveling and the TARDIS. Yeah. And one thing one thing that really caught my eye, I don't know if it's meant to be there or not, but, or if I'm just reading too much into it, but one thing that caught my eye was as soon as she's back on the TARDIS, you kind of, she kind of gets this this rush, like like you'd see, I think of tra oh, yeah, train yeah, spotting yeah. or something like that. There's this bit of a rush that, that a drug addict might get or an alcoholic might get from 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 taking some heroin or taking taking a drink uh, that she gets when she goes back into the TARDIS. And she even says, oh, that noise. I never knew how much I loved it. Like, she even reinforces that she's yeah. getting this. She's 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 refeeding this addiction that she had throughout the, the Series 8. And I can't help but wonder if if that is going kind somewhere. Of, well, not so much going somewhere, so much just feeds into her continuing on the series. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. continuing to travel with the Doctor. Like, is this something she she is still enjoying or is she, can she get over it or, you know? And you know, I would contend is that it's the traveling rather than the doctor that she's addicted to. Unlike the companions that we've had, or well, unlike the Russell T. Davis companions, the Russell T. Davis companions were pretty much all addicted to the doctor. Whereas with Stephen Moffat, I think he's turned it on his head. I mean, with Amy Pond, you had the scene where she snogs the doctor Mm -hmm. But that's five episodes in to two and a half years. And from that point onwards, she is with Rory. And the only time that the sort of Amy and Doctor thing is brought up is to reinforce the fact that she's with Rory. Part of part of that, though, is is as soon as she tries it on with the Doctor, the next, the cold open of the next episode is the Doctor at Rory's bachelor party. Exactly. Dragging, yeah. dragging Rory into the mix just to prevent that from ever happening again with Amy. Absolutely so it's, right. So it's, it's, not, it's not necessarily her stopping it, it's the Doctor stopping it, if, if anything. Yes, but also in a more metatextual way, it's Stephen Moffat stopping it. You know, what I think is that the first five episodes of that series are Stephen Moffat saying, this is what my predecessor did. And the opening scene of, of episode six is Stephen Moffat saying, and this is what I think of that. Yeah. So yeah. I think I think Stephen Moffat puts his foot down at that point, and from that point forwards, writes the Doctor as asexual. I've just written about this for the magazine, actually. It's not going to go out for something like six weeks, so people are getting a preview of my column now. <laughs> I think the Doctor's relationship with River Song is unconsummated. 
I think the way she behaves, the way she does towards him throughout is because she's trying to get him to consummate it. And I mm -hmm. think the doctor is like a rabbit caught in the headlights who has no idea what's going on, who's just going along with it because he's not used to getting that kind of attention in that kind of way because she is being so obvious about it. And like I say, she's being so obvious about it because she's trying to make it happen. I think she's one of the most tragic characters in Doctor Who because by doing the relationship backwards, what she is in effect doing she knows right from the start it's never going to happen and she knows every step of the way that no matter what she does she can never make it happen and yet she still tries and tries and tries and that kiss in the name of the doctor when she's dead and he's kissing her ghost and she can't really feel it because she's just electronic impulses in a machine it's the most tragic scene in the whole of doctor who Two things I would offer about that. One is I'm staunchly of the opinion that the Doctor and River have never been married. Over and above the yeah. fact it was happening in an alternate reality, it was the Tesselect and not the Doctor that was in that ceremony. I'm sorry. I I don't care if people think I have my head in my head in the sand like an ostrich. I just will not will not believe that ever happened in, in uh, as a thing. And even um, if it did, they didn't consummate it. No, no, of course not. Um, and I've also completely forgotten the second aspect I was going to bring up. Oh, but... My okay. goodness, okay. No, it's fine, um, no. You were going to agree with me. Let's leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, at least to a point, absolutely, yes. So, uh, what I'm saying here is, Russell T. Davis did characters who were addicted to the Doctor. Stephen Moffat does characters who are addicted to the TARDIS, shall we say to put it into a word, to the travelling, yeah, to the yeah. going out there and having the adventures. Donna, Donna might be considered a hybrid between the two of them, I would say, but uh, yes, yes. for the most part, yes, I would say that's correct. Yeah. And even, I tell you what, and this is, when I was writing this article, this is even what I noticed then, is that uh, if Donna is an exception to the rule, what Russell T. Davis does in Series 4 is brings Rose back just so that he can carry on and do that story anyway. Hmm. Which is, I thought, a bit of a shame, but... But I, you know what? I still loved Russell T. Davis's stories. I know I rag on them a bit now by comparison with Stephen Moffat's, but that is only because I like Stephen Moffat's stories even more. Oh, that was the other point I was going to bring up. Oh, go on then, yeah. As far as, as, far as, as, far as potential consummation is concerned, with River's life running opposite to the Doctor's life, if anything would or could have happened... It would have been with the tenant doctor, and only the tenant doctor. Potentially, yeah, yeah. But for, for if anything were to happen, and even then, because they have such a limited time together, there isn't the opportunity for it to happen. So therefore, no, it didn't happen and couldn't happen, unless of course River comes back and something else goes. You know, some other plot element is introduced. But yeah, I because I don't I don't think her I don't think her, you 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 you. You labeled her as, as as dead in time of the doctor. I don't think she's. I don't think her story's quite yet done. I don't know. I that kiss at the end of name of the doctor is. Uh, if uh, that looked to me like a full stop on that story, it may not be. <laughs> Stephen Moffat has said if if a story comes think, along think, that think demands of, the character, he'll do it, but only if. And think of the full stop you described a while ago as far as Clara's character at the end of the series yeah. is concerned. So but then, of course, know. 
like I said, Stephen Moffat gave that as a deliberate full stop, knowing the story was going to continue five or six weeks later or whatever it was. I think that was a deliberate deception. Whereas the name of the Doctor feels like an actual full stop, possibly. Mm. Okay, I can understand that. <clears throat> right, Chris, we are now, oh God, an hour and 45 minutes into this. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was just the two of us. We'd be shorter. We've been longer. <laughs> and you, you were saying to me you, you were fearful of getting even an hour out of this. Do you know, I at the start of every podcast, because I don't usually do notes, like I said, I'm thinking, oh God, we're going to get 20 minutes in and I'm going to think, what else are we going to say? I'm going to have to stop. <laughs> Doesn't quite happen. Um, look, it's a blue box podcast. We mark the stories out of 10. Are you happy to do that? Uh, I am, yes. Well, I'll tell you what my score is already, because obviously people have read it on the magazine's website. I gave it a 9. Okay. Uh, when I was reviewing this for, for uh, Radio Free Scarrow, it was... My, my score was thrust upon me by Warren. Uh, Warren, Warren decided... Oh, yeah, he that, did, didn't uh, he? I'd forgotten he decided that. that. He decided that I, I was giving this one a 7 uh, based on my reaction to it. And I thought it was a reasonably fair assessment. Uh, because I've had the chance to think about it for a, a handful of days and, and rewatch it, uh, I think I'm going to have to bump it upward to... It'll, are we doing half points? We don't do half points. We We're only do points? integers okay. on this show. All right. So as as an integer real number, I will say eight. Excellent. Yeah, that's would, fair would, enough. would have been eight and a half, I think. But I I'm think, not rounding up. No. See, I'm a... What I will say is that although we only give whole numbers, I will occasionally say it's a nine, but it's a low nine. Or it's a nine, but it's a high nine. Mm. And I think you're right. I think this is an eight and a half to a nine. I don't think it's, I think, it, it, I think the execution of it doesn't quite work as well as the idea itself, if you know what I mean. I'm more taken, yeah. I'm more taken with the story than I am with the execution. And the reindeer were bloody awful. <laughs> and, uh, yes, I'm not, I wasn't, I was going to try to not bring up the whole car alarm remote key fob beeping thing that uh, oh, yeah. was introduced in the end of time. That was, you know, but it happened here. Yeah, it did. <laughs> Mind you, it was within a dream, so maybe it's forgivable. Ah, good point. Okay, I can accept it a little bit more in that regard. Yeah, just as long as nobody's drinking potions, eh? <laughs> well, let's not go there. Okay, there's a couple of very short emails on this episode. Gerard Gray says, I hope you're having a great Christmas and got loads of great presents. I thought last Christmas was more like a regular series episode with a bit of Christmas thrown in. It was very good, though. Something a bit different from the previous specials. And Sean M. Vale, who... Um, okay, well, it'll be in the email. He says, absolutely my favourite Christmas episode ever. Just before this, he'd written to me to tell me he wasn't looking forward to it at all. <laughs> so he carries on and says, really, no kidding, so lovely, it hit every one of my buttons. He says, despite the one glaring, notable and disturbing flub this season, the Doctor as a scared child in a barn, I've grown to love Series 8. I have had some serious misgivings along the way, but I somehow had faith that it would be great by the end. It's right up there with Series 6 as one of my favourites of New Who. I wasn't fond of the pirate episode then, much like the scared baby doctor this year, a terrible end to a wonderful episode, but the rest were great. Capaldi has won me over. I really can't wait for next series, and I'm glad Clara will be back. 
possibly the best Doctor Companion matchup since Tom and Liz. And that was Sean M. Vale. Chris, how do you feel about that? Because I have to say I agree with Sean. I think Capaldi Just because he's called Series 6 among the best? Uh, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I was hoping you wouldn't bring that up. <laughs> but I do. I can't not. Capaldi and Clara have that thing that Tom Baker and Liz Sladen had, do, yeah. don't they? And- they do. They do. Um, as with most people who cut their teeth, on the, cut their teeth on the classic series, Tom and Liz was um, this is as classic a pairing as one is ever going to see. But weirdly enough, one one pairing that never ever gets any love, and I don't know why, because I think it's such an, a magnificent relationship is is the Fifth Doctor and Tegan. And I say that not as a Fifth Doctor fan by any stretch, but um, I think that was because people keep referring to Tom and Liz as as the last great classic example of a doctor companion relationship. But I was, I adored the crap out of fifth doctor and Tegan so much, just um, being polar opposites and then agreeing. And just, I loved it. But uh, yes, bottom line, this is, I think, I think by far the best doctor companion relationship of the new series, um, which was a tough thing, tough crown to take away from Donna Noble. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, never... and actually, in series one, the ninth Doctor and Rose, people forget how good together they were, don't they? They were. They were because the tenth Doctor and Rose kind of uh, overshadows that for whatever reason. Hmm. But um, I was I was never a fan of the tenth Doctor and Rose as a pairing. I was never. A f- I preferred Martha to Rose, but overall not a huge fan. But when Donna came along, I mean, series four for me was not that good on the whole. But Donna as a component of it was what held it together. Yeah. That's what kept that's what kept my interest. I've got to and... spoil things for people here a little bit because we've got this vote going on on the Blue Box Podcast Facebook page. And this vote's going to be going on for another couple of months if anybody listening to this wants to get over and join in. Because it's the 10th anniversary of New Who this year, we're having a show in March where we'll just be doing like our favourites of various things to do with the 10 years of New Who. And we've asked the listeners to vote for their favourite series. And that's one thing that's been coming up is series four. Not great stories, but great relationship between the Doctor and his companion. And people don't know how to mark that series because of that. Yeah. And to my mind, the only proper tragic end to a companion's run as well. Because, I mean, Rose's, Rose's, the, the end to Rose's run was tragic, and then that was undone. Yeah. And Donna's, I mean, Donna's, Donna's ending was... It was upheld, it was, it, basically. It was, it, was, it was upheld, but it was, it was very tough. It was, it was, it was so, it was so different. Yeah. Well, it was sort of essentially the same ending that Jamie... As Liz Slayton. Although that Jamie and Zoe had had in the War Games. Sort of. But it was uh, done sort in of. so much yeah. a different way. In the War Games, that was done without any real sort of emotional impact. I mean, yeah. not that it didn't have an emotional impact on the audience, but it was done without that being in the writing. Whereas obviously... Well, it was, it was, and it, it, was done be, it was done because it had to be done. Yeah, I mean, within out the of confines necessity. Of, yeah. Well, out of necessity and also within the confines of the story. The, the, the Time Lords intervening in the war games and yes. the time where it's recalling the doctor at the end of uh, hand of fear so that sarah couldn't go with him um it, it was done as 
as part of the story very effectively. And, and Donna, because she would basically die if, if it continued. And yeah. so, yeah. Right, Chris, we're up to nearly two hours. Over well, an hour and 50 minutes. I've got four more emails, but they don't relate to last Christmas. So I'm, <laughs> I will save them for uh, Lee and Simon next week, assuming that's what happens next week. All right. And, and I will hear them as I listen to, to that recording as it uh, is released. Excellent. Right. So I, it's quite late here and it's New Year's Eve we're recording on. And obviously you've probably got things to do as well. So I will let you go now. <laughs> But thanks for joining me in an emergency last minute podcast. And thanks for talking about last Christmas because I have thoroughly enjoyed this. Oh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It was, it was, it was my pleasure. I had a lot of fun. Yeah. I knew, I knew that you and I would sit down and have this kind of a conversation. Well, at least I was hoping we would and we did. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. Then until next week where I'm under no illusions that we won't be doing yet another last Christmas review. Until then, I was JR. And I was Chris. And we will speak again then. <laughs>